I invite you to join me in taking out your Bibles once again and turning to the Gospel according to Luke. The Gospel according to Luke um, chapter 6. And as we go to God's Word, let's turn to Him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You for not leaving us alone to find our way home, but you have given us your word and spirit to guard us, to guide us. Father, we do not indeed live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. And so, Father, be pleased now to feed your people, that we would grow and mature, that we would grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Do you remember what Luke presents as the first sermon of Jesus? Uh, If you don't right now, and I think that's sometimes pretty hard, just turn back to chapter 4. Remember, Jesus is in his hometown of Nazareth. Um, He's given the scrolls, the scrolls are opened, and his text uh, is from Isaiah chapter 61 and 58, and You'll notice his text ends in chapter 4, verse 19, with to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That was his text. It ends to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus exposits that text. He explains it. And he says it in summary in verse 21. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. How did people respond to that first sermon, that first public teaching and speaking ministry of Jesus? Well, if you keep looking, the response was at first in verse 22, that all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. They marveled, they they were captivated by what Jesus said, and they spoke well of him. But notice, six verses later, then all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. Wow. As Jesus continued speaking and interacting, the response goes from all spoke well to all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. What a turn. What a change. What a love-hate relationship you see with Jesus right there. Well, what happened? Why is there opposition to Jesus? I mean, the year of the Lord's favor? Remember, just in last, in a couple weeks ago, we saw where the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled. They murmured. It echoes what Israel did in the wilderness They weren't happy. They grumbled. Why? Because Jesus and his disciples were what? Eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. Opposition to Jesus. Luke is writing here an orderly account to provide certainty about the person and work of Jesus. We know from Jesus' own words, looking ahead to chapter 19, verse 10, that he came to seek And to save the lost. And as we walk our way through Luke, we will see that Jesus is is seeking and saving all kinds of people. 
who were lost in all kinds of ways. And Luke, in particular, among all the gospel writers, emphasizes Jesus' care and concern for the lost and the least. Now, before the word marginalized got used and abused and overused, if you ask Luke who's the focus of Jesus' ministry, it's the marginalized. It's the poor, the crippled, the lame, the outcast. Jesus is focusing, as it were, on the margins of society. And if there's anything we get from Luke, it's this picture of Jesus being gracious and merciful. Kind, compassionate, gentle and lowly as we read about Jesus' own declaration in the gospel according to Matthew. And Luke wants his reader then, he wants his readers now to know for sure that this Jesus, this gracious and merciful, this kind and compassionate Jesus, who nonetheless is opposed. He wants his reader to know that this Jesus is for real. Last week, we looked at chapter 5, verses 33 through 39, and behold, the new has come. And with Jesus, Luke is saying a new era has dawned. In the presence of Jesus, it's, a, it's not appropriate to fast. Rather, it's appropriate to feast. And we get to feast, as we saw last week, in part now and in full one day because Jesus kept the fast of which Isaiah the prophet speaks is a true fast that pleases the Lord. Well, today, as we move into chapter 6, this opposition to Jesus will continue and intensify. What is it about Jesus How could someone who's compassionate, gracious, merciful, how could someone like that be opposed? Well, Luke invites his reader, he invites us, God invites us into the narrative. And so as we hear these 11 verses of Luke 6, uh, we need to ask ourselves, what's our view of Jesus. Join with me now as I read Luke 6, the first 11 verses. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him? And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, 
Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy life? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Well, these two incidents could easily be two sermons. But because of them, but because both of them are united by the theme of the relationship of Jesus to the Sabbath, we're going to consider them together. Remember, Luke is arranging his narrative for a purpose. He's telling us not only what happened, but also what it means. And he's illustrating some of the great themes of Jesus' earthly ministry. Now, when we unpack our text, I think we'll see Jesus doing at least three things. He's going to be making a declaration. He's going to be asking a question. And he's going to be issuing a warning. He's going to be making a declaration, asking a question, and issuing a warning. We see in these first five verses, Jesus makes a declaration. Jesus is declaring who's actually in charge. Notice the scene. Jesus and his disciples are out and about on the Sabbath. And they're hungry. And they're eating. There was nothing wrong with them plucking the grain off the edges of the fields. In fact, God's people had been told to leave grain so that the poor and others could, could, could get it. But, but what is happening here is in this expression of they plucked and ate some of the heads of grain, which would not be, according to the Pharisees and others, unlawful. They are actually rubbing them in their hands. Interesting detail, rubbing them in their hands, reaping, threshing, winnowing, and preparing food. And that was against the law. You see, it's interesting that the the Pharisees at the time, uh, they had 39 specific things that you could not do on the Sabbath. And four of these had to do with what's happening here, this reaping, this threshing, winnowing, and preparing. Now, the Pharisees, what are they doing? They're asking a question, but in asking a question, of course, they're making an, ac- an accusation. And we, we, we hear that all the time in media, right? Oh, I'm just asking the question. No, you're making an accusation. Just go ahead and say it. And Jesus asked Excuse me, Jesus answers their question uh, in one of his typical ways. He, he asks a counter question. And he goes to the scriptures. Have you not read? Well, of course they had read. Do they remember? They knew the story, but did they know the point of the story? He, he's bringing out here a clear implication of that Old Testament passage that we heard read earlier about what happened to David when he and his men were hungry. Their hunger, a a daily need, a daily necessity was provided by this holy bread of the presence that was only to be eaten by the priest. 
on the Sabbath. Now when, it's not just commandment number four, remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy, but it's also a creation ordinance. Remember God rested on the seventh day. When God had finished creating, created, he created, he rested from his work and he provides a blessing under his rule. Now it's hard to appreciate for us here and now how important the Sabbath was for the Jews here in the first century. And together with circumcision, it was the defining feature of their self-identity and, and spiritual culture. Not only would you identify them because of the covenant of circumcision, uh, the sign of circumcision, you would identify them as to what they did on the seventh day, the seventh, Sabbath. It was what most distinguished them from other people. Remember, after the rescue from Egypt, after the rescue from slavery, God gives the Ten Commandments to his people through Moses to reveal his character, to help guide their life. It distinguished them from other people, this fourth commandment. And yet, as I mentioned earlier, in order to not break the commandment, the fourth commandment to remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. In order to not break it, what happened? 40 minus 1, as some of the Jewish writers wrote, 40 minus 1, 39 extra rules, a hedge around the commandment to protect you, to prevent you from breaking the commandment. So Jesus reminds them of Israel's history. And of course, the text did not say that David was rebuked by the priest. The, the author did not say that David had sinned in this. And so what does Jesus do? He makes this declaration. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He has already... Say, been say, he's already been saying and it's already been observed and noted that he has authority to teach, to call, to heal, and to forgive sin. We've already seen that thus far in Luke. And, and yet, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. It is a staggering claim. See, Jesus here is saying that he is greater than David. Instead of saying, you must let Scripture determine your life and thinking. Jesus is saying, in effect, let what I say determine your life and thinking. That new era has come. The new wine into the new wineskins is here. Now Luke, interestingly, doesn't let us know at this time how people responded to the declaration. He just leaves it hanging. Now in saying that he is Lord of the Sabbath, that seventh day, he's making a declaration about the Sabbath. He reminds them of the purpose of the Sabbath day. It's to be a blessing, not a burden. And the way many in Israel, following the religious leaders' guidance, the way that many are observing the Sabbath, ironically, is making not working into a religious work. Now think about that for a minute. They're turning what they can't do 
What they're not supposed to do, we're not supposed to winnow and thresh this grain, just the rubbing of the grain. That's work. We're making not working a work that pleases God. Again, Scripture does not condemn David's act. It's, it's, it's saying in a way that the law is a blessing. It's a gift. It's not a burden. In Mark's account of this incident, we also hear these words from Jesus. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, this day of rest is for you. You're not for this day of rest. Jesus is in a way saying, man, made in the image of God, is more important. And you'll see that all throughout Jesus' ministry. You see, the Pharisees he was talking to, they knew the story. But they, they missed the point. See, this basic need that David and his men had, this necessity to eat so they wouldn't starve, was greater than the letter of the law. Do we know the stories, but somehow miss the point? One commentator uh, brought up an interesting expression. Uh, are we in bondage to trivia of the stories? We, we know all the details, but we may not know the point. I think that's true for all of us at, at times. We know the story, but we don't know the point. And Jesus here is helping those who are listening to him get the point. And so what follows in Luke's account of the life and ministry of Jesus is a demonstration now of the truth of Jesus' declaration. Remember, Luke's concern is, is less a precise chronological account and a more arranged account to present Jesus as the compassionate Savior, as the Messiah who has come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to rescue and release and redeem. So Jesus not only makes a declaration, but he asks a question. And we see this in verses 6 through 11. He asked a question about the true purpose of the law. So now we're moving from a scene walking uh, out and about on the Sabbath to being in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And we notice in Luke's narration that Pharisees were watching him. In the original language, this is a depth of action it's spying. It's setting a trap to accuse. It's not watching to observe and to benefit from. No, it is spying. It's as if the, the Pharisees have been carrying around clipboards, taking notes. Where is Jesus going to depart from our law? Their mind is settled and they're just looking for evidence. You've heard that expression um, what, show me the crime and I'll find the evidence? They've already convicted Jesus of a crime. They're just looking for evidence to support it. And now what is going to prompt this question here from Jesus is he's located himself 
the Pharisees and a man in need in the synagogue on the Sabbath. Notice it's a man whose right hand is withered. That withered hand really is a picture of how all of life is shriveled until restored by Jesus. Now remember in Jesus' healing ministry, he not only heals physically, but when he forgives, he heals spiritually. And the physical miracle points to the spiritual miracle. And here, this withered hand is just a, a quick summary of how life is shriveled. Doesn't work well. It's not useful until it can be restored. Now, what is being asked by Jesus in the question? Uh, Jesus is making another declaration about the purpose of the Sabbath. And just as their earlier question wasn't a question but a trap, so also Jesus here in asking a question is, is it, it's a judgment. On them, You see, the Sabbath, again, was made to be a blessing and not a burden, a delight, and not a duty. But notice how Jesus asked a very direct question. Look in verse 9. And Jesus said to them, I ask you. Luke could have not included that. He could have just said, and Jesus said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath? But no, I ask you. It's a direct question. Now, how do the Pharisees answer this question? Notice in verses 9 and 10, they answer it with silence. With silence. They can't answer. In the name of piety and in a concern for legal Detail. They had become oblivious to both the purposes of God and the sufferings of man. Remember, the law can be summed up as loving God and loving neighbor. How do they answer the question that Jesus presents? With silence. Again, Jesus is going to ask the question, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? They don't answer. But in a way, they do answer because if you go down to the last verse, verse 11, they get into a discussion. A discussion with one another what they might do to Jesus. Luke, excuse me, in Mark's account, he speaks of Pharisees and Herodians, guys on the opposite end of the spectrum with religion and politics. They're united in their opposition to Jesus. It's a discussion. It's going to be a conspiracy, a, a plot to destroy Jesus. Jesus is not someone with another opinion, but he's someone who's offering another way, a new way, and he's a threat. Notice what Jesus came to do, to do good and to heal. And what did the religious leaders do with their watching with their spying, with their clipboards open and taking notes. What did they come to do? Well, we'll see it unfold. They came to harm, to destroy. And when of all days on the Sabbath? Do you see the crazy irony? To do good? No, they're doing evil. To, do, to, to heal? 
They're going to plot to harm. See, the shadow of the cross is already now going to start falling on the pathway of Jesus. Here we see clearly opposition to Jesus. Uh, Two things to note about opposition to Jesus and his followers. Expect it and prepare for it. There was an English preacher that once said, any old fish, any dead fish that is, can float with the tide. However, once a fish comes alive, it finds itself swimming against the current. And here the current that Jesus and his disciples are going to swim against is not the unbelieving pagan current. He's going to be swimming against the moral, upright, religious current. We've seen Jesus making a declaration. We've seen him asking a question. Now we will see him issue a warning. A warning? Yes. Well, where do we see a warning? Let's take a look. In verses 1 through 11, Jesus is going to issue a warning against the hardness of heart. The danger of a hardened heart. Look with me again at verse 11. But they were filled with fury. They were filled with fury. An idea is mindless rage, irrational anger. You can almost, when you read that, hear the heat increase, the temperature rise. They're filled with fury. They're angry. They're enraged. I think this is a good way that we see illustrated what we're seeing in our discussion of the book, The Prodigal God, that there are two ways to rebel against God by being very, very bad, being irreligious, or by being very, very good, by being religious. I mean, one is overt and external disobedience, and the other is covert and internal disobedience, where you're trying to be a better God than God. It's two sides of the same coin, whether you're bad or whether you're good, you're attempting to control. You're attempting to be God. And Jesus is running up against the hardness of heart. This re- willful refusal of people to accept the truth, even when it's there in their face. Because you see, when God doesn't listen to sinners, and Jesus is sinning, so why did God use Jesus to heal this man with a withered hand? Well, the conclusion is this Jesus of Nazareth has the blessing of God, has the power of God. It's right in front of their faces and they refuse to believe. A hardened heart refuses to submit, to relinquish control. It's it's not just a struggle. It's, It's a refusal. As we see, as Luke walks us through the ministry of Jesus, we'll see that Jesus has a Fierce impatience with those who have a hard heart. But Jesus has a tender forbearance toward the worst of sinners. Those who have a soft heart. Like Matthew when he called him. And Matthew dropped everything, or Levi, and followed him. 
Again, the warning is there. It's implicit. It requires a little bit of thought. But what are some of the warning signs? I think there's three that arise in our text. You see, Jesus is encountering people who have a greater concern of being right according to their own laws and understanding than godly. They're more concerned about being right than godly. Loving God, loving his word, loving his people. See, a greater effort is here being made to find fault in others rather than yourselves. The, the Pharisees are using the clipboard and they're looking at Jesus. They're not using the clipboard and looking in the mirror. And my friends, that is all of us. It's so easy to see in others what we can't see in ourselves. And Jesus is drawing attention to that. That's why we confess our own sin. We don't confess other people's sins. And another sign is when confronted by Jesus, when confronted now by the Holy Spirit, we refuse to submit, to confess, to bow down. Now in presenting us with scenes of a work of necessity, did you see it? In the grain fields, the, Jesus and his disciples were hungry. David and his men were hungry. It was a work of necessity. And then in the synagogue, it's a work of mercy, healing. You see, it's interesting, the, the, the Pharisees and teachers of the law, if a, if a life is in danger, you can heal on the Sabbath. But if you could just make an appointment with the doctor and see the doctor Monday or Tuesday or whenever, that's, that's what you really need to do. Jesus is showing mercy. Mercy kindness. See, Mark is showing us what Jesus says can and indeed should be done on the Sabbath. The great work of necessity and mercy. In these two scenes in the life and ministry of Jesus, we have seen Jesus speaking to what can and should be done on the Sabbath. Works of necessity feeding, and works of mercy, healing. Indeed, one of our shorter catechism questions and answers, question 60, says this. How is the Sabbath to be sanctified or made holy? The Sabbath is to be sanctified by a holy resting all that day, even from such worldly employments and recreations as are lawful on other days, and spending the whole time in the public and private exercises of God's worship, except so much as it is to be taken up in the works of necessity and mercy. Jesus, here in our text, is doing works of necessity and mercy. But have you noticed, those of you that know the biblical story, did you notice that these works of necessity and mercy point forward 
to an even greater work of necessity and mercy. The salvation of sinners. You see, my friends, we all need to recover the Christian Sabbath or the Lord's Day as a day of worship and rest where works of necessity and mercy are also done. It's not a day of our own accomplishment or achievement, but absolutely it is a day of accomplishment and achievement, just not our own, but His. You see, this day, the Sabbath, the Christian Sabbath, the Lord's Day, is a day of beauty and blessing set aside to focus our wandering hearts, your hearts and my heart, to focus our wandering hearts on the work of necessity of Jesus in our place and on our behalf, living that perfect life of obedience, dying the sacrificial death for our disobedience. That's his work of necessity, but also the mercy of God in Christ. You remember in the beginning, God said, my work is finished so he could rest. And on the cross, Jesus will say, my work is finished so we can rest. And so my friends, God is letting us know today that we're not only permitted, but we're also called to enjoy this day this day that the Lord has made, this day that is a day of rest and gladness, rest in him and gladness for his grace and mercy to sinners like you and me. Let's pray. Father, we do believe, but help our unbelief. Father, we think, thank you for this narrative account of the life and ministry of Jesus on two Sabbaths where he performed a work of necessity and a work of mercy. Oh, Father, we thank you for the Savior that Jesus is. We thank you that he has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. Help us to worship him. Help us to rest in him. Help us, Father, to be glad. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm in response today is a new one for our church. A day of rest.